Hello everyone, welcome back to another Fireside Chat. We are live again. So this is Fireside Chat 37. Uh, so a few minutes ago, like we uh, we were talking to each other, so like, okay, what could we talk about this time? And one topic that we deal a lot with uh, is monoliths. Because as you might know, we, we, we do a lot of software modernization work and we come across all sorts of monoliths. And I said, like, why, why don't we have a chat about like the most common issues that we find when dealing with monoliths and, and how do we deal with them? So we know that uh, as we were just discussing a few ideas, it's like, look, this might have like this might be a big episode because there are so much to talk about in terms of monoliths and legacy codes and stuff. So we said, you know what, let's talk about, let's pick one topic at a time. We describe the, the issue and how we deal with it. And, and if we have more to, to, to talk about, we have other episodes as well. And I would like to invite you that uh, joined us live. I can see that Mohammed is already there, as always. So always good to have you there, uh, Mohammed. Uh, to also add your topics to the live channel, as, uh, live chat as well, to say, hey, if you are dealing with monoliths or had experience with monoliths, what are the most common problems that we find? And then we can also talk about that. Yeah. So, so guys, like uh, monoliths. Uh, I believe that there are a lot of pros and cons uh, with monoliths, but what are the main issues that we normally find uh, with monoliths and how do we deal with them? Okay. Um, oh, I guess I'll, I'll start. Yeah. So the main thing that I see uh, would be the mess <laughs> basically because you have everything in one place and that has advantages it's a spaghetti yeah. but it, it has uh, disadvantages as well especially if you haven't been disciplined about it right like you because there are many types of monolith no you can have a well-structured monolith you no know, and and things can be you know in the place and isolated and all that so you can you can get the cohesion within a within the unit right mm -hmm. uh but it also because there's nothing enforcing that cohesion or that or at least that encapsulation of, of certain behavior uh, it's also very easy to skip that and it tends to be the main <laughs> the main thing that people do right like uh especially uh, it, i don't know if it's because of time constraints is it because you know the, the people tend to hack around a lot on on that kind of stuff and all of that stays there and eventually over time it just becomes spaghetti code right uh a big ball of uh, the big ball of mud no um and that's the the main issue that you find right like because once you're in that place everything else becomes difficult not only adding new features, not only, you know, if you want to split things out, it's it's very hard. If it's if everything is a mess or the code base is a mess, then doing anything else is is difficult. Um, I don't know. What what do you think? I I I would totally agree. I think as Mom uh, uh, is saying as well that you know it gives an impression monolith itself is bad, and that's that's not the case. I think what we are specifically talking about is an unstructured monolith or, or spaghetti code or big ball of mud, that kind of thing that you see. And the big problem with that is that those that thing is very difficult to reason about and change. 
right? So the, this is like at the very base level, that's the problem. You can't, the code is so big that you can't really uh, take the hole in. You have to spend years and years on it to get, get familiarity with it so that you can be, you can make those change changes. And also the changes are not safe. So it's not just about finding the right thing to change, but also how safe it is, right? You don't, you don't have a full idea of what side effects you are causing, what could go wrong with the, the chain that you're making, what impact you have on the, on the features that already exist in that monolith. And I think yeah. that is one of the most basic problems that you get with it. Yeah, yeah. so the, the, the thing about the code base being a mess, uh, this is not only a characteristic of a monolith, right? So it's, it's more apparent. We hear more that, more of that, like when we are dealing with larger systems or larger deployables, if you like, uh, than when you have like smaller systems. But you, you hear that a lot. Oh, the code base is a mess. I've, I don't know any one of you, like, have you ever been in a project where the, the, the developer said, wow, the code base is pristine. The code base is amazing. So very, <laughs> there will be very few exceptions, maybe, right? So, but but what I would say is, uh, I normally when I hear, uh, oh, the code base is a mess. Quite often, there is a lot of truth to it, right? So, but but there is an element of perception as well. So that the, the is perceived that the code base is a mess. And what I say that is because different developers have different uh, uh, ideas of what a good code base look should look like. And because they don't share a common understanding of what a good code base should look like, it doesn't matter how the code base is structured because they will find, if it's not how they are familiar with, or, or, or if it's not structured according to their preference, they will find that it's not well designed or it's a bit messy. There is also an element of knowledge of the code base and sometimes even in the main model as well, because some code base, like the, the domain is complex. And because of the complexity of the domain, combined with, the accidental complexity, that is the complexity that we create in the code base, uh, the lack of familiar, familiarity, sometimes with the technology or the, 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 the patterns used or the architecture used to, to, to structure the system also has created a perception of uh, structure, uh, of mess. And then there are uh, skills as well, because there, is, there are certain skills in, in, in navigating complex code, because Complex doesn't mean messy necessarily. Of course, that we we have this idea that this... a code base should be simple, but simple according to your degree of understanding, your degree of skills, your degree of familiarity. All of that will play into what is qualified as simple or complex. This to this you. is this is a really interesting thing, Sandro, because actually familiarity and skill as well. Certain people, the I would argue that certain people actually perpetuate the complexity in unstructured monoliths. Uh, I remember, I think uh, you, you've talked about this person a few times as well, Sandro, like when we joined UBS and there was a guy who, he was given an award for making the most amount of changes in the code base. And, and you'd sit with him and you'd, you'd see how he made those changes. He had over the years built this familiarity and how he verified different parts of the code where he, you know, kind of hot swapped classes into kind of test systems and uh, 
you know, just added that next if statement in there, but just knew how every, because he knew the, uh, the code base intimately, he built this proprietary skill set. <laughs> and, and it is skill, it's definitely skill, but it actually perpetuated the problems in there. And in fact, he was becoming increasingly the only person who could actually change the code base. And, and once I, I remember I sat with him and I said to him, could you give these skills to other people so that we, you know, they can work as a team with you? And he said to me, why would I want to do that? He won't be the hero anymore. But, but that, like, it's interesting you talk about skill because I think it's not necessarily a good thing being able to deal with like certain people build a very proprietary skill set just for that code base. Uh, but and it's, it's, it's interesting it dynamic. It's slightly different because like what I meant was, uh, for example, when we worked for a, a larger investment bank, um, I remember that some of the legacy systems, they normally were sent to a few other teams in, in, in other countries away from the UK uh, for other people to maintain. So, so those people, they, they, they didn't necessarily build the system. They were now just maintaining those uh, very old and legacy systems. And, and I remember visiting those teams and working with them. Uh, and there is a, a certain skill in navigating complex code base, understanding what they do, and making change to it. This is not something that, of course, there is even uh, better skills in gradually fixing those mess. Right, because again, it's not only dealing with them and do another patch and make it even worse over time, but there is a lot of skills in understanding what a complex code base does that not every developer does that well. They sometimes they get so annoyed because of the unfamiliarity with the code base or because it doesn't satisfy their notion of quality. They, they let their emotions and their uh, they become angrier and upset that they don't really understand the code and are not able to deal with that this is, this is block, the, you know this is one thing that i think is quite interesting from what you were saying sandra because um people tend to conflate i don't understand it with it's a mess yeah right exactly. like that's the that's the that's exactly. the key aspect there as well no it's uh, okay it might be a mess yeah but sometimes it's just it's complex. It's not easy to understand. There's a there's a cognitive load to to basically be able to work with the thing, and you get frustrated, and then you know you you close up, you close yourself to to understanding or dig into the pro, uh, into the problem, and then assume that the solution is either to rewrite or to do it in your way, isolated exactly. from the rest. And that is only contributing to increase the complexity. <laughs> so how many systems have we worked on? Especially with, you know, systems with, with old frameworks and that kind of stuff, right? Like if you work with PHP, you know, since way back, no? Uh, you had UI, you have all of these frameworks and, and people, every time that a new framework would come along and you wanted to, oh, let's start with the new framework. And then you have three or four different uh, frameworks living in the same code base uh, and depending on which part of the code you want to touch then you would have to do things one way or uh, or through you the know? old system or through, and that already is creating 
a bigger issue than just you know sticking to the old framework or replacing it completely no but but you know jose i think again this is one of those things that could be depending on the context you could be right in either approach or wrong in either approach yeah right because the monoliths become and you know i, I love the term ginger shaped systems right monoliths <laughs> become spaghetti when you add code to you just add that next bit of code even though it doesn't belong there but pulling it out and making it separate is a big deal and you don't want to do that so you put you just add it in there and that actually leads you towards the spaghetti and i really like the ginger shape thing because the other one that you just mentioned is like where you don't want to make the change there because that to you is unknown and you don't really understand it so you try to isolate the new thing to the side but it's not really the new thing it's just another part of that other thing that should have gone with the other thing but you don't want to do it there because it's, <laughs> you it's don't feel you're you scared don't feel of it safe. exactly you're scared of, of yeah. touching it and yeah. so you add it over here and then you just add the next module to your ginger, you know. <laughs> and both, both are actually wrong thing to do, depending on the context. On the context, yeah. 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 And, and there is like, uh, so just, just getting quickly to, back to Mohammed, the cog uh, is cognitive load subjective? Yes, it is subjective. It's not subjective. I think it's relative. Uh, probably is a better way of saying that. Is relative to your skills, to your familiarity, to your perception, to your personal attitude, depending on how familiar you are, your attitude towards the, the job that you are doing and stuff like that, you will have a bigger or a smaller cognitive load. So that, that, that learning will may hurt you or not uh, in terms of like personally, you'll be... Uh... It's, a, it's a contributing factor because there is an element of how complex the code itself is and how, how difficult to read it is and how... You know, it's not intention revealing and all that kind of stuff. And but all how, those things yeah. are relative. Yeah. They are relative so, to the reader, to the person working, because you can find not, those attributes at a different level than I could, than I might find. No, no, they, they, skills and so on. they, they are, but there is a base, I think. The, what, what I'm trying to say is that it's not, it's not all dependent on the reader on how complex the code is, just like it's not all dependent on the code, how complex it is. The, the, it's, it's almost a it's a combination of the two because the code can be very simple and and then it it is simple you know uh, it's a slightly more complex to someone but in general is is quite simple but the code can be complex but to some it's more complex than to others but there is a baseline of the code itself as well there is an objectivity in the code and how is easy or difficult it is to read with but then all then on top of that you get the the skills and the knowledge and the attitude of the reader. Yeah, well, so I, I, I guess there is a part here around whether you can quantify it or not. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, part of, of you know what makes it, for me, subjective or, or objective, no? So you can feel it, yeah. Can you measure? Can you say, okay, so this is this baseline that we're talking about, uh, MASH, right? That's the part that I don't entirely see, no? Mm -hmm. That that doesn't make it entirely objective for me. I like that. That's the way. No, that no. I... The baseline itself is not. What I'm trying to say is that you know, like taking it to the e extreme, a five line method that is the only piece you have for the whole system is very simple, right? Whereas 
and and then of course you you know you build on that. I'm just kind of they. It's I'm not talking about the baseline oh. that all chords have a baseline. I'm not. I'm what I'm talking about is that the chord itself has inherent readability and reasonability, regardless of who's going to read it. But of course, the reader also has skill, uh, which is regardless of the kind of chord that they are reading. Okay. So, the, I have like the uh, of code. I don't think that's a good uh, measurement because I, I was just looking at an algorithm the other day, and it was just you know five lines of code. That's not you know what I mean. Of you know and No, I think I think you, you, or with this. I know, I know, but that, that that's <laughs> just taking the the, the, the <laughs> argument see, and creating no, a straw no, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 we we know what you mean. But but I have a, 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 a an experience, and that's a real fact. Like that that talks exactly that. There was a conference in US that I went to. It, that goes probably back, maybe twelve to thirteen years or something like that. Uh, and 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 most of the people were from Ruby. They were Ruby developers, and that was back in the day where functional programming was becoming a bit cool among the object-oriented programming languages. Yeah, so a lot of people in, in like in the OO were trying to get closer to, to functional programming. So Michael Feathers was giving a talk uh, in Chicago and, and the, the audience was 90% Ruby. And he showed uh, uh, around, I don't know, five to seven lines of code just with dot this, dot this. And he was mixing maps and reduces and all this kind of stuff, which back then was not a common thing for a lot of us, right? And he was asking who could understand that, uh, what that code was doing. And very few hands trying to give it a go and not everyone uh, said much. And, and, and then he said, look, this is part of the core Ruby now. So, so and, and he was talking exactly about that. So like for the people that are familiar with concepts like MapReduce and, and functional programming and stuff, this is quite clear what it does, but someone that is not familiar, even using a familiar programming language, will find this code quite cryptic. And that's mm -hmm. what I was talking about familiarity and stuff. But anyway, but, but we explored a lot of this. How do we deal with this perception of mess? Because every developer says, oh, this code is mess, and I'm, I'm upset. I want another project. I don't want to work with this shit anymore. How can we try to uh, reduce this, this problem? Well, it really depends on what you're trying to achieve, right? Like if it, if it is about overall uh, solving the issue, right? Like because again, you can treat the symptom, no, or you can treat the the root cause. And sometimes you just want to get your stuff done, so you treat the symptom. It, sometimes you you want to get rid of the problem overall, independently of of delivering the thing, and then you have to treat the the root cause and. You need to understand where that is coming from if you want to treat the, the root cause. Otherwise, you know, you're not solving the issue completely. So I think that's important. So first, understanding where that is coming from, right? Uh, for instance, is it, you know, people don't know how to do, you know, what good design would look like, or they don't have the skill set in order to, uh, uh, let's say, properly test or divide or you know whatever it is that you you want to do with that so that is is one area understanding where that is coming from and then there's the mitigation side of things right like how do you treat the symptom the same time that you're 
uh, working the root cause, right? And this is things like, you know, refactoring, the Boy Scout rule, that kind of stuff, right? Like leave things better than you found them. Now, if every time that you go there and you add the new, you add a new feature and you, you know, you, you clean things up a little bit, no? Uh, eventually you're moving in the direction that that you want yeah um again it all depends on what you're trying to accomplish because okay. if you have a deadline on on top of that or if you have a that then the solution the space kind of I, changes but I, I think i i think uh, jose there is a a more basic thing even before all those things and those okay. things are definitely relevant but there is a more basic thing it's like as developers and this is, I don't know, maybe I'm getting old, but this is becoming increasingly more popular, is that we are becoming more and more opinionated and our op opinions ride our emotions before we even get started. And I'm talking about that beginner's mind, right? You know, when you come to a code base, like reserve judgment, like come to a project, you know, come to anything else. It's like, first of all, try to understand the whole thing. It might be shit. It might be whatever. But first of all, reserve judgment. If it's difficult, manage your emotions and follow through and understand. And I think mm -hmm. this is a skill. It's a mindset. It's a way of being. I don't know what it is. I'm but that's, that's a basic thing, regardless of all, all those refactoring techniques that you have in your things and the things that you'd love to do and the the you know, the, the solid principles that you've learned and the four rules of simple design and the new frameworks, and everything, like hold them to the side. Just try to understand what's there. And I think a lot of the time people are not taking that time to, mm -hmm. to, to do that. And that's the base, I think, the basic mindset that needs to be there in order to deal with these kind of monoliths. I, I would say a very similar thing. Like uh, I, I was just like the, the word that I had in my head was attitude. First of all, I would try to solve the attitude. So like, you know what? It doesn't like, it's not going to help you if you just start complaining about it. I think we even talked about in, in a previous episode about the minimum viable professional. We talked about complaining and stuff like that, if I'm not wrong. Uh, so I would resolve the attitude first of all. Say, so look, you know what? We are here to make this better and to keep working with this. So let, let's remove the, the, the bad attitude to start. And then go dig a bit deeper into why do we perceive that code should be a mess and then address that. For example, is it just perception? Then I would say, okay, do we have different ideas of what a good code base should look like? Because if this is the problem, it doesn't matter how we refactor, we are going to still be thinking exactly the same way. So I would just create that, that uh, uh, baseline and say, look, let's agree on some quality principles or design principles or whatever that quality principles would look like from the low level to the high level. Let's agree on that because we are going to start moving this code base towards this and we need all to be aligned, right? So if that is one thing. Another thing that we have in one existing project right now, I'm not going to name to, to, to save the, 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 the people there, but like there is an existing project we have at the moment that one of the key problems that we are having there is domain knowledge. The system is extremely complex. It's in the logistic uh, uh, area. And, and because of the lack of domain knowledge, because the intrinsic problem is complex, and of course, there is accidental complexity, no doubt, in, in the system. The patterns that are being used to solve the problem are also not 
the most common available patterns. We are using sagas and things like that. So, uh, the, but what what would what was beneficial already? We ran a few workshops with the, the client just to teach us the business, how the business actually worked. And that already helped us to understand what the code base is doing. So, and then again, there are the skills that I mentioned what Michael Feathers was doing. So if, for example, we, we were in a project where we were all Java developers asked to code in Scala. And we wrote Scala in Java. Well, uh, yeah, we, the code in Scala was written as we wrote the, the Java code. So there is a skew in that as well. For example, if, if, if I was thrown in a, in a closure project right now, I would make a mess. Right, so 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 there are different solutions or different things we need to do to address this notion of. Uh, I, I think I think there's an important point you mentioned there, Sandro, and I think it's worth elaborating on is the accidental versus the um, the inherent complexity. Yeah. And uh, when you go into systems, the inherent complexity is 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 the is the complexity in the problem. And you can't get rid of that unless you re-engineer the business and the business processes right and you can but that's a different different kind of battle um and but as developers we need to teach ourselves how to deal with inherent complexity and that is that we need to learn the domain as you were saying we need to fully understand it it, it uh, and then then there is the accidental complexity and that's where you know how you design the system how you what languages you use well, you know whether they are used right whether they're following the idiomatic kind of patterns for that language and for that way of working so the first is the inherent complexity and and we should learn how to to deal with that and how to to learn it and give some time to that because often I mean, in, throughout my career, I have found that, you know, good developers who, who are, you know, really prize themselves of, of developing well would shy away from actually learning the domain. Yeah. And that, that doesn't help. That just Yeah, I remember them. like even at, at UBS that uh, we were even recommended that uh, the life cycle of a trade, remember yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. book, we had to learn the, the business uh, in order to be able to, to work with those systems. Exactly. Uh, but again, this... No, sorry, go on. Sorry. No, because before it seemed like, because what I said was very much aligned with that. Yes, you need to, well, what I was saying is you need to understand what the root causes are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand how to treat symptoms in order for you, while you're working on the root cause, you can also treat the symptoms. Yeah. And of course, if you need to understand the, the root cause, you need to understand what is happening. And that includes for me, you know, Knowing the domain, knowing what is already in there, et cetera, et cetera. So there is no mismatch between what we were saying, right? We are actually very much aligned that. There is a component here that we haven't discussed, though, which what I was trying to refer to, which is the time that you have in order to do. It's not the same to have a horizon of we need to get this stuff done, you know, in two weeks and, and chip it out, no? Uh, then if this is something that you're going to be working on for the whole year iteratively and incrementally you're still chipping out feature up but you have a year to you know tidy up <laughs> so to speak and do things in different stages and and really evolve that uh, and those the the time constraint and resources constraint and knowledge constraint that you have no a kind of uh, set certain boundaries that you have to within which you have to work right and yeah. that kind of 
reduces the number of solutions that you can uh, that you that's can a very find. that's a very good point because yeah you know if someone says to you that's a tactical thing we got you know we got a couple of changes to make there and then we're not going to touch that thing for another year or two years you don't then go and say well actually let me read it about the domain, yeah. <laughs> domain. Exactly. give me a couple of months i will become a domain expert and then i will start making some changes uh, yeah no to <laughs> totally Totally. No, that, that, that's fair enough. There is a, a, a comment from Marabezi uh, here, but then again, uh, but then again, I think the industry has a problem. How can we keep developers happy with such code base? So I, I don't think that we can solve the problem because, like, I think that we would be solving the wrong problem because, like, you the developers are like normal people. They have different preferences. So you cannot make all the developers in your team happy regardless of what you do and which projects you give. So some developers will be happy about certain projects, others will not. Uh, and, but I, I would try to, to think about the attitude because like ultimately, I know that it sucks to say that, but it's this reality. Like we don't pay, for example, when I, when I have an accountant working for us or a dentist or, or a plumber or whoever we hired, as we mentioned these examples many times before, I, don't, I couldn't care less about if they're happy or not. They need to do a job. If they don't like their job, they need to do a different job, right? So ultimately there is a job to be done but there, of course, the companies that have loads of developers, of course, they need to look after the health of them. But trying to please every developer will not work. You know, so, you know. Yeah, go on. Sorry, sorry, Sandro. Like the, this is. Um, I, I remember having a, a conversation with a few friends who are not in software development, and I was trying to explain to them that software developers have this idea of sexy code or code that they, they're really happy to work with <laughs> and the code that they're not happy to work with. And it's so funny because we take it as a given. They could not understand the concept. They said, like, are you developers or not? And if you are developers, <laughs> then, like, how is it that you you like easy work, but you don't like harder <laughs> work? I mean, I don't like one of them is, like, my... Uh, you know, they're, they're in in social work and medical and so on. We don't take a patient that has really difficult health issues and say, mm -mm, you know, this is not <laughs> exactly. good work. I'm, I don't, oh, don't want to no. do this work. Right. Let, let well, me go find the next one. Now, <laughs> stuff that I like doing. Yeah. And, and, and I, I never saw it that way. Like, we almost take it as a given. Oh, yeah, it's, it's fine, you know. Like, yeah, oh, poor you. It's such a difficult project, blah, blah. But like they don't understand that that dichotomy from outside coming in. They don't they don't understand it. You know, and rightfully I have a, so. <laughs> now that you're saying that, I I can I can see where maybe some of that is is coming from, and I think it has to do with how you prepare. Do you feel uh, to work with something like that with the difficult situation versus the the non difficult situation? I think that that has a lot to do. Yeah, I mean, there are many factors. You know, you're you have CV-driven uh, development and all that stuff. But we can we can talk about that, right? Uh, but if you find yourself in a a greenfield situation, yeah, you're basically you know you have the support of whatever new technology you're you're going to use or the tutorials or whatever, right? And whatever it is that you do, so you understand everything from scratch. You can you're you're a lot more comfortable. You know, adding to your own mess because you you're building that con that cognition of of the system as you're building it, right? 
So that's easier to do to some extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then if you have to absorb all of this stuff and then use, you, you cannot jump to where you want to go. You have to go in steps in order to make it easy for you or, or, or to, to work within the constraints. You know, if it's a life system or, and those skills are not taught. Mm. Yeah. So you're ill prepared to deal with that. Therefore, you're not very comfortable. No, it's like, let's say if you're, uh, I don't know, the, the doctor example is, no, it's because uh, you study medicine for many years and you study, you know, there's a baseline that you study and then you, special, you specialize in things, right? So you have some idea of how to, no? But imagine, you know, taking a regular, you know, family doctor or, or no, and asking them to go and operate on this very, you know, critical patient. That's the the analogy I, I there, it's a, right? It's a very, that, that, it's that's, very the, that's the analogy that, that I see. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. But even then, like if you get a GP and say, okay, you know, here's a heart patient, could you do surgery on it? They, the, the thing that they will say is that I don't have the skills for that. Yes. You know, it's a worthwhile thing to do. <laughs> they will not done. say that the problem is the patient. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. They no, will I not say the problem is the patient. Exactly. I think there is the subtlety, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, again, and this goes back to, to you know, to having a code and, and the development or, or software engineer or whatever being an a, a early state profession kind of thing now and you know, software craftsmanship and, and all of that stuff. But yeah, I, I agree. That, that's part of the, you know, of Guys, the thing. No? So so we, we, we had, a, <laughs> just before this episode for whoever is listening, uh, like we said, oh, let's talk about the problem that we find in monolith. We had like a small list of uh, bullet points. We managed to cover one in half an hour. So, so, <laughs> and I don't think uh, we've covered that one. We well. can still continue and, talking and about it. We can continue for another half an hour, right? So, but like, uh, what else? So we talked about the code base being a mess and, and all the the, the the things associated to it. But what else? When we are talking about, I'll make it a bit bigger than Monolith, uh, like when we are dealing with legacy normally, right? So mm -hmm. uh, what else? What else do we find uh, that is common? I think a good next step would be to talk about, uh, let's say, correctness or verification or, you know, being, you know, mm -hmm. going about this fear of not touching things and, you know, contributing to the mess because safety. we were afraid of, of touching the thing. So basically ensuring that if you're going to be working with that and you're new to the system, you don't have all of this knowledge or, or previous knowledge, how do you make it so that you have this uh, safety net that allows you to, to work uh, on it properly because a lot of the times these systems have grown and the only source of truth that you have on how the system is supposed to behave and what the business logic actually is and so on is the system right this this is the and and things could be hidden yeah that like i've seen a system where you know you have business logic in store procedures in the database <laughs> yeah and then uh, some other part in this other system in, in you know in php and then this other thing in in net and the, like it's it's all spread out so bringing all of that together if you had a way or a source to go to that would ease that cognitive load as well then you may you know and you may devise a way to verify that what you're doing is not breaking things up and then you you get more comfortable in making these changes and evolving and but that is actually hard when you 
when you're starting from something that is a mess, right? Yeah. And uh, again, this requires a specific set of, of skills for that, right? Like you you have things like Golden Master and, and all this stuff where you kind of do kind of a, a black box, if you will, not testing kind of approach where you're, okay, so it's supposed, you know, I put some stuff in, it, it, this comes out, uh, and then you're kind of building that safety net without actually knowing what is inside uh, the box. And then you start making certain certain changes. No, So I think that will be a, a, a good aspect of how do you do that? No? How do you make sure that the system is testable so that you can you know, do it? And it's testable because this is another problem. Uh, the speed at which you're able to get that feedback loop or something is very important as well. If and this is, this is common, you have this model, and then you have to set up, you know, five to ten dependencies and bring all this stuff so that then an automatic script or someone manually, yeah, goes in, puts in, types in some numbers, clicks on the thing, then goes somewhere else, verifies the, you know, like that's a very long feedback loop. Yeah, in order to know if something is, so, is right or not. You know, you know, again, this is one of those things where people go on to into extremes yeah uh verifiability is extremely important i mean without it you will always be guessing if you made something wrong and it's actually complex you know verifying the system as a whole not that your feature works but that you haven't broken anything else is not is easy said than than done right but like speaking about the feedback loop this is actually something that is I've seen in uh, people going in, in very different directions. I've seen real big proponents of test-driven development only relying on unit tests or the, the tests that run on their machine and think that they're done and complaining about everything else and not like even, for example, the complexity of how big the database is that this particular chain that I will make may scan my production database that has a you know 60 million rows in there and this field is not indexed you know they they don't really go down in in towards those kind of things oh you know my my unit tests are passing and and fine and i have seen uh people writing part of a system where they don't know how to deploy the whole system and they haven't even seen the front end for that thing Right, so they don't, they're not testing the whole system. They never, they don't even know how, they, in some cases, they don't even know what the full system looks like. And they, there is another problem on, on the other side as well. And, uh, and what has happened is often, in these kind of cases, I, I had people coming and, and complaining, like, you know, they, they're making changes and they're failing in production. And if, if only they could just run it in, in one of the test systems and see their feature, they would have seen it fail. And so, so there, there is this whole, the way I, I always talk to uh, people on how your system should be is that you should have verification at, at different levels. You should have the full system running and you should be in your tight TDD loops, but you should always be seeing the system from, from the outside as well on how you're impacting it. And those loops should be, you should be in and out of this frequently within minutes of these kind of different levels of, of different viewpoints, right? And if you're not doing that, then you're compensating one for the other. Either you're too far one end or the other, other side. 
So, so, so here's the thing, right? Uh, it, it might be a bit unpopular what I'm gonna say now. Um, Brace yourself. <laughs> so, when you were saying, I was seeing people going to the other side. I, I thought that you would say something else. Uh, so, for example, because one side for me would be some people go there and make the changes without tests and they rely purely on the test, the, the manual test regression that happens later on and so on. The other side that, that uh, I've seen is for the, the very purists about TDD and test automation. And by the way, I don't want to be misunderstood uh, because we are big advocates for test automation, test driven development. So I believe that people know that know me can discern that I'm not against those things. But what I'm trying to say is that I've seen the other extreme. The other extreme is to say, I refuse to make any change while I don't have a, an automated test suite in place. And this, there is a problem because in, in, when you are dealing with certain legacy systems, retrofitting those tests, mainly at the system level, is so complicated. Even if you try to get to a golden master, for example, I've seen teams spending weeks to have a small part of their golden master to be done because they need to capture, they need to intercept the system as they run the thing, to intercept all those different side effects that might not only be a database, might be calls to other systems, might even be callbacks, uh, asynchronous callbacks coming back. So there are all sorts of complexity in there. So then they go on for weeks, sometimes even months, creating a test suite without making the change that they could have made. Because before that, they, people spent years making chains without tests and it's still pushing that to production eventually. So the other extreme is also bad. So sometimes what I feel is uh, your system is not prepared to be tested at multiple levels or to get them prepared at, to test at multiple levels might take days, weeks, or even longer. And sometimes I would be an advocate for that, at least at the beginning, to do what they were doing before and making the actual changes and test manually. But as they are making the change, they start pushing the code to a better shape. So then that it will be easier to retrofit the test. Because sometimes just trying to put the, the system tests and then go inwards until you are able to refactor, it takes too long. Sometimes you know what? Put a cowboy hat. This is this is one the example test manually and once the code is already tested manually with the refactor at that point you could retrofit because it will be easier mm -hmm. so so there is an element to that as well yeah this is one example of the time constraint that i was referring to before as well yeah uh, that's that's another thing yeah but yeah and there, yeah yeah i i have an anecdote remember i it's sadly it's one of our consultants who who had to uh, make a change to a script, uh, a bash script, and and it was a small change, and decided to write a a unit test system for the for bash script before they would make that, and then write the test, and then make the change to that bash script. So a job that required a couple of days to do was spent. I think of a couple of months doing it, and that is is not being professional. No, uh, you know it. It applies all the the things that we advocate, but in the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. So I think this this is the thing, right? So 
you need to balance those things. Of course, like you, you cannot run before you walk, right? So if you're you are dealing with a very large legacy system that has no test, is a spaghetti, all messy. You cannot wait for it to be fully tested at multiple levels for you to start making chains. Yeah. Because they were able to make chains and go live with the system without a single test before. Yeah. They can. And of course, it was not ideal. Of course, it took some time to do all the manual tests. No doubt, but it was still faster than waiting now for a full regression test in a larger system. Yeah. So you need to balance those things. And 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 the other thing is, you know, like there is no harm in asking those people and how they because how they were making those changes because there is this kind of familiarity with the system where they know that certain places are difficult to touch and others are easy to touch or not to 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 change that variable or not to do that little thing they they have this built-in knowledge that is allowing them to make changes safer so that's one th one aspect is that you know you start using those people to help you understand where the changes may be safer or not. The other thing is that, you know, there are well-known refactoring techniques, right? In uh, working factory with legacy yeah. code by Michael Feather has a lot of them where you can rely on certain techniques to make changes that are safe or exactly. safe-ish, you know, so you, you just have to be disciplined. Very verifying is obviously the the holy grail. Being able to verify that you made correct changes and haven't impacted other things inadvertently is the holy grail. But you can also make like rely on tools, compilers, your IDs, and all those things to make changes that are not gonna be a big problem, right? So so you can make safer changes in that exactly. way as well. Because because you can liaise with with QA, for example, whoever does the manual tests. Uh, and say, look, how do you test it today? How do you test it manually? Because somehow they, they push stuff out, right? So hopefully with not so many bugs. <laughs> uh, and then I say, okay, how do you do that today? Okay, we're going to take this very small part of the system here that is critical for us to evolve. And, you know, and we want to put all the, the automated tests and all the manual tests and stuff, but we need to get this feature. So why don't we... So we are going to make a few changes using some safe refactorings or even like sometimes bringing more people like either pairing or even bring another person to review people that have more familiarity with that area of the system and make the change without the tests even, right? Do some change and stuff and then use the knowledge with QA, work together. So like, okay, if you had to test that again, but now let's test this version of the code in here. Can we guarantee that it's working well to, us, to the degree that you would guarantee the old one to work with no automated tests? Because if yes, then, okay, we moved forward and faster. And now the new version of the code is ready. Okay, now we know that it works. Now that we said, like, QA would say, okay, it's working, they would be comfortable to push it out. Now that it's in a much better shape, let's retrofit all the tests so that from now on, it will be much easier to change and we don't need to go through this process again. But but sometimes this is not an approach that is a lot that people talk much about. But I think that this is uh, a thing that people should consider when dealing with very complex legacy code without tests. It's faster to do this way. Mm -hmm. right. So there are other. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, you, no, go ahead. No, no, go on, go on. No, there, there, there are more things. So depending on on the system, another thing that could create a bit of a problem is the whole 
a build and release a pipeline, right? Mm. Um, first, because you know, because it's a monolith, you need to a lot of the time just compile everything, and you know, it's just you you even if you made a small change to a specific thing, then you need to everything needs to go through it, right? Uh, so that's one one area. And uh, if that takes a long time, then people start trying to hack it. No, as in, what is the, what is the, how can I make this change so that I don't have to build the whole, <laughs> the whole system? So, and already starts introducing that uh, compl accidental complexity just because, you know, the feedback loops are too long or too, uh, too the, complicated. The microservices approach in the monolith. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a modular monolith. That, that, I'm uh, gonna, I'm gonna hot swap that class file over there. <laughs> so, but, but you know, yeah. like for example, yeah. in, in some in some contexts, uh, this hurts a lot the business. Like in contexts where they have a very large and important system, and they have multiple teams working on that system, and everyone needs to synchronize everything that they need to, they need to do. And this is a this is not an easy problem to solve, and that's not a quick problem to solve either. But I recommend normally to tackle this as fast as we can. And the, the and the solution to that is you need to try to have some sort of modularization. If you're gonna take the modularization all the way to a separate service, regardless of the granularity of this service, it is a different matter. But you need to find a way to make sure that those different teams or individuals are able to work independently and release their things or at least test their part of the system easily and independently without having to synchronize with anyone. Because while you don't get there, and sometimes you get there, you need to hack. You need to, to have some very drastic <laughs> changes. Uh, and, and the faster you do, the better. Because if you delay too much, you're going to be building on top of that. You'll be cementing or even increasing that complexity even further. The, the, Sandra, before we go there, I, I totally agree, by the way, around the modularization that you need to get to, to be able to get to that point. But even before we go there, there is an element to, you know, these kind of code freezes and, you know, we've had this kind of, mm -hmm. this team has the token so they can yeah. do the changes. Yeah. And Now, a lot of this, I think, is even with a unstructured monolith, a lot of these processes are lazy thinking. Or these processes have been put in place by teams that don't actually do the development, or they're simply not interested in improving things, right? So the because there is even with you know if you if your build pipeline is uh, is well designed, you can even take an unstructured monolith and not have to do code freezes. And if, for example, you are working, and I know like the whole trunk-driven development is all the rage, right? And then they say, oh, yeah, but what if your trunk fails? Then you must fix it immediately and all the things. And I know that, like, features, uh, branches, and so on is, is like, old-fashioned and bad, bad and all those kind of things. But there are things in the middle as well where a lot of times where you're doing small uh, uh, branches where you do a build and, and it passes, and then you do a kind of merge into master and that passes, and you keep doing this a lot. So you are constantly trying to keep your your master pristine without having too many issues or your your trunk pristine, and 
and building those kind of slightly more intelligent pipelines that that work well using things like feature flags and all these kind of things as well you can have multiple teams working on a monolith before you get to that modularity which is the you know in in a way the, the ideal right but that takes a long time but oh, there is a lot that. of low hanging fruit that you can do with just being clever about how your build pipelines and your your production de- uh, environment deployments and production deployments work. Yeah, but I don't remember if we discussed that in a previous episode or not because we had so many of those conversations uh, internally as well. Uh, you you don't need to to stop the world and say, hey, for the next X amount of time, you're gonna just be uh, modularizing the system. And we we discussed many different approaches. You can, uh, but you need to have an idea of what kind of modularization you want to have. This conversation needs to happen as soon as possible. You need to have these kind of features like those are the things that should be separate from each other. It doesn't matter like how far you go with that work or how soon, but for example, because one approach would be you take every new feature that you need to develop. And as you are working on that feature, you start driving the code base towards that idea of modularization. And you do that gradually, one feature at a time. But you need to have that idea in mind you don't need to stop the world and mm-hmm. uh given the 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 yeah the the, the needs of the business and priorities. yeah and, the, and the, once you have sorry sorry go on go on and once you have clarity around that then you can start enforcing it even at the tool level right like there there are things that you can put in your pipeline that will tell you that that will flag for instance is there you know if someone is not following the layered approach that you that you propose or the if certain modules are talking to other modules that you don't want you know to be connected because you're trying to reduce the dependency that that kind of stuff so but if you don't have that visibility of where you want to go it's really difficult to to then enforce that at the tool level uh, uh, even if even if you have the tools to do it right because then basically what are you going to work towards right Mm-hmm. So th- there is a, a comment from uh, Marabesi uh, on the chat. The, any opinions on how monolith became a negative thing for software, like monolith equals bad? Are there places which monolith is a good fit? So my opinion on this is not on the monolith itself, is the problems that are caused uh, by certain types of monolith. For example, it becomes very difficult to parallelize work because of the things that we were discussing here. Uh, If the monolith is very, uh, is a spaghetti, all the changes need to be synchronized because we are always releasing the entire monolith, which means that everyone that worked on that monolith, all the work done by different people, different teams in that monolith needs to be synchronized, test together, released together. And this is an issue. Like if you just have one team, a small team working the monolith, normally that's not a problem at all. If you have like, if you scale the problem, have multiple teams in tens, maybe even hundreds, as we had in quite a few projects of people working on the same code base, that synchronization of work becomes very difficult to deal with and testing all those things together. And that's what that's one of the reasons that uh, Monolith became, uh, well, the, 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 the architecture style uh, failing uh, is not favorable anymore. So people want to parallelize work and be able to, to release more frequently 
And for that, we need to be able to parallelize the work easily and test each thing individually more easily and faster, which is much harder in a monolith. That is, yeah. Yeah. Even even in one team, I, I think, again, that's why we talk about unstructured monolith or spaghetti code. And monolith inherently isn't a bad thing. I think it's like, you know, following those principles of low coupling and high cohesion, as long as you have that and, and it's all in a single deployment and you're in one team and you don't have to, to uh, you know, uh, uh, work with a lot of other teams to yeah. make changes happen, then it's the right right way to go it's not it's not it's it's not a wrong approach without any context it is in fact if you do have uh, lots of services and so on you will have to have a complex deployment system you'll have to have complex environments and all those kind of things and and how you test those things uh, locally as well that also makes so you you move complexity to a different place so it's like you give some to get something and if you have multiple modules deployed separately in services, then then you give the complexity of deployment to get the parallelization and the lower cognitive load of making a kind of change. And yeah, also, uh, you think about a plugin architecture. Uh, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. Like exactly. And and but you need to be again very thoughtful about how you go uh, about doing that because then if, if you create the wrong boundaries then you're in for a disaster basically so you're just multiplying your your problem and increasing the complexity because now on top of all the dependencies and the synchronization you needed to do you increase the the uh, all of the deployment uh, aspects as well and, right? and, and observability and, and traceability like all of the things that you that come with that trade-off that you're supposed to be you know, doing you know so what, you need to do it properly you know what usually happens is and I, a long time ago I remember I wrote a, a, a blog post called premature microservices and what normally happens is that when you draw these boundaries prematurely you know you've created quite a hard thing to replace Right. So when people say, oh, you know what, this particular feature, it doesn't fit in, it fits in between those boundaries. So what do they do? They don't obviously take those things and redraw the boundaries. What they do is they put their things in, in an existing place and it's the wrong place. So what starts happening is that you get these, the, you know, your, your nice kind of cohesive microservices are no longer cohesive. So what you get is, is basically a network of unstructured monoliths. Where yeah, functionality... yeah, I think Simon Brown calls it a distributed monolith. The distributed, distributed monolith. Yeah. The distributed monolith. Yeah. I think that, yeah. yeah, that's, yes, yes, totally. I mean, because what you then have to, there, there are other patterns that get, lead you to distributed monolith as well, but this does as well, right? Because then you yeah. have basically knowledge distributed in multiple places that you then have to make changes and in sync, which is actually way more exactly. difficult. Exactly. they say. Because the, the science is exactly that. Because you change one service and you need to change more services and we need to always deploy that set of services together. And that's, the, the, the and that's such a difficult problem to solve. Yeah, yeah, it's such a difficult problem to solve. And that, that problem doesn't happen with the monolith. So it's all... And, I, you know, Marwesi is asking for, like, main, maintenance of monolith is quite painful as well. I guess it's deploy... Oh, sorry, that's Laura asking. And you asked painful how. Um, and it, it, it can be painful because so many changes have to, to go in at once. And it's almost, it's like all or nothing, you know, 
you've got to deploy the whole thing uh, or you haven't been able to deploy the whole thing. You, you don't, haven't been able to isolate your deployments either. And that can be painful. But on the other hand, microservices, their deployment is inherently painful. And that's why, like when you come to a microservices-based approach, they talk about platform automation from the very start. <laughs> from the beginning. Because if you don't have that, you're in a world of pain. Exactly. So the monitoring of all those services and what, what has that made? Yeah, and, and but, also once you, let's say you, you have all of that in place, even debugging, if you get a defect in production, even debugging across uh, the across those across boundaries, boundaries and, and, and understanding yeah. what is happening, like what is happening becomes a lot mm -hmm. more difficult uh, as well, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, yeah. no, great. Um, yeah, but but also like but like the point that Laura was mentioning, of course, that if you make a change uh, and your code base is much smaller because it's a smaller service instead of being the full app, you reduce the chances of breaking other things. So your changes tend to be localized, and if, if even if there is a problem, the problem is also localized. That area of the system might not be working very well, but hopefully, depending on how it was designed, everything else should still work as expected. So. Uh, so we, we've been uh, going for an hour. So this is a huge topic. I'm, uh, I had a lot of fun uh, discussing this. I, I believe that we can go for uh, another hour easily. And there are so many things to talk about, uh, legacy and monoliths. So and distributed monoliths. Distributed monolith <laughs> I think there's a lot to talk about here. that day, yeah. 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 We, we just mentioned that now, but uh, we, we are running out of time. So any final thoughts, like any to, to wrap up and then we might have another episode on this so that we can continue the, the conversation. So, so I can start with the final thoughts. I, I, I think, you know, we, we started with this thing about the attitude. I think it's a, it's a very important thing that, we, you know, we need to change this. Uh, we need to adopt this attitude that, you know, all software is we keep the judgment at bay and try to walk in those shoes, try to be pragmatic, uh, if some, someone has been delivering it at, uh, in a particular way, try to walk in their shoes first before you start making judgments and start kind of already trying to refactor things. I think that's that's one thing. And also with monoliths, as, as we said, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do to start dealing with that gradually. We always talk about, like, you know, when our service software modernization, we always talk talk about strategic systems right because these systems are there they are the often these legacy big systems are there as the backbone of of a business and if they're a backbone of a business it really helps to 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 take care of it and the way you take care of it is not by by almost demonizing that thing it's a unstructured monolith is a legacy code and it's used doing all this and so on and it's bad. It's not bad. It's running the business. And as professionals, we are there to understand it and to see how we can gradually improve it while maintaining the business. And there's a lot of skill involved in it. And once you learn those skills, there's a lot of satisfaction involved in that job. You know, that is brain surgery, right? Mm -hmm. That's going to open a heart surgery. And there's a lot of skill and a lot of uh, satisfaction to be had there, I think. Mm -hmm. Jose, any final thoughts uh, from you? Yes, my, my point is that you need to be able to learn the tools 
that allow you to operate on that patient independently of no, so so that you feel comfortable as well, no, uh, working in that kind of environment, and that will make it uh, a lot more rewarding, no, and uh, it would allow you to make better choices, no, uh, when it comes to dealing with with that kind of context. So things like you know learning refactoring and and testing, not only TDD but overall like how to how to approach a system like that uh, and and evolve it uh, is something that you you need to build um, because again it doesn't matter if you started your your system on your own eventually that system will also become legacy you know and you will also have to deal with that or not if you <laughs> if you leave no but uh, but overall if you have those tools then you can you can feel less pain no when dealing with a monolith like like Laura was saying uh, before no like at least you'll be more prepared to to deal with it no and, and to do the job um, someone was asking for recommendations uh, of course you know the working effectively with legacy called the, the I think it's Michael feathers uh, book uh, you also have refactoring to patterns uh book so those are yeah and refactoring databases i think there's another one called refactoring databases as well which is another often forgotten part of that <laughs> of that work uh so those definitely check them out and one that i would like to read i think they're doing it right now in the book club that we have internally but i think it's the the latest uh Bob Vernon book uh, and it goes uh, implementing domain driven design. No, 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 no. He has a new one, something around uh, monoliths as well. Well, okay. well, well structured model, well designed monoliths or something like that. I don't remember the name of the book. Maybe, maybe Maravesi can uh, can put it there in the chat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that could also be an interesting read. I'll, I'll check it out. It's quite recent. Strategic monolith and microservices. Exactly. That's the. Mm-hmm. That's the name of the book. So maybe that would be an interesting read as well. I don't know. I can recommend it, but it seems like it, it might tackle some of these things that we're discussing here. Yeah, cool. Yeah, for me, it's also a method of attitude uh, as well. So I, I'm very biased. I, I love large systems, large and complex systems. It, it's what I like to work with. I, I don't have a lot of patience to working just with a small new feature in a small system and just like oh yeah it's just this serverless got something in javascript and you have a new screen it's not my bag i like very meaty huge systems uh i find it far more challenging and exciting to work with so so there is an attitude in there uh also uh a skill uh aptitude towards that as well uh and and yeah, and some of the books everything like on the domain driven design there are quite a few books from von vernon from uh, Eric Evans from other people in that uh, realm. Uncle Bob has a good a few good books that I think should be read in terms of clean code and clean architecture and things like that. I think that it should be part of that uh, reading material. Uh, so I think that most of it, like uh, the others mentioned already. So yeah, cool. So thank you very much for every, uh, everyone. So if you are just watching the, these, not live, but if you want to leave the comments, for example, what are the challenges that you have with legacy code or monoliths and stuff? There is a big chance that you're going to have another episode on that. So leave the comments 
uh, and we might choose them as topics for the next episode as well. So that's all from, from today. And I see you next week again on Tuesdays. Uh, so thank you very much. Hit the notification button oh, yes. and all of that stuff yeah, so that you get notified when we're going to go live. <laughs> exactly. Subscribe to the notification button. Thumbs up. Thank you very much, everyone. See you. Thank you. Take care.